Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. With this sermon, we wrap up our Advent Sermon Series, Preparing the Way. John gives us the most powerful perspective of Jesus, and at the same time asks us the important question, what are you going to do with him? You're listening to Preparing the Way, John, by Reverend Peter Yonker. While we wait for the choir to come down, and thank you, choir, for leading us again, um, let's open our scriptures to our Bible reading for this morning. That's John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the final in our Advent sermon series, a sermon series which is focused on the beginnings of the Gospels and how each of the four Gospel writers prepares us for the coming of Jesus. And of all the uh, four intros to Jesus, John's prologue is perhaps the best known. Before I read it, um, I want to give you a sort of a frame of reference. Last week in my sermon, I talked about paintings. We talked about paintings of the Annunciation, that story where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce that she will give birth to Jesus. And we noticed that in a lot of the classical paintings, um, Mary is sort of depicted as meek and mild, whereas in Luke's gospel, Luke, um, Mary is terrified, right? She's greatly troubled, but still in the middle of her terror is faithful. I want to continue that painting metaphor. I want you to think of John 1, the prologue, as a painting. As I read this, if instead of writing words, John was making brush strokes. What sort of portrait of Jesus would this be? Listen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of a one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, 
and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Our culture is, is um, pretty comfortable with most of our Christmas stories. Pop culture especially has shown an ability to just sort of accept most of the Bible's Christmas stories. And in fact, not just accept them, but sort of absorb them. So stories like um, Jesus being born to Mary and Joseph, stories like the angels appearing to the shepherds, stories like the wise men. Um, our culture, whether they're Christian or not, they love those stories. Those are great stories. They don't necessarily believe them, right? They're not the center of their lives, but they like those stories and they're perfectly happy to put them in the Christmas soup, right? Make them part of the ambiance, put them on the shelf next to Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman and the Grinch. It's all holiday cheer. And you can sort of see how that's possible, right? The story of Mary and Joseph having a baby. Who doesn't like a young couple having a baby? Lovely. The story of Jesus being born in a stable. You put a couple cute animals next to him, it has a sort of hallmark charm. Even the wise men, right? The crowns, the flowing robes, the presents, it gets you into the holiday gift-giving spirit. And so the, the culture happily brings them in. We put angels on our wrapping paper. Cute images of the baby Jesus appear at the end caps and Target. And on his Christmas album, Barry Manilow has a song where he mashes together Silent Night and a song about Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, everyone. That's what pop culture does with our Christmas stories, our biblical Christmas stories. They make, make pop culture makes them quaint and then makes them marketable, right? They get assimilated. Pop culture may be able to do that with many of our Christmas stories, but you know one Christmas story, one Christmas passage that pop culture cannot touch? John 1. John 1 cannot be turned into kitsch. John 1 cannot be made quaint. And that's because of the way John paints Jesus. It's helpful as you interpret the Gospels to use that metaphor in your mind as you think about how the Gospel writers do the work. They're all painters. All the Gospel writers are painters painting portraits of Jesus. And they all have slightly different angles on who Jesus is. They want to emphasize different things. In the, in the mean, at the bottom, they're all painting the same story, of course, right? Jesus Christ, Son of God, come to the world to walk with us, die on the cross, rise from the dead, pay for our sins. So that's the story that they're all painting, but they paint that story in different ways. So Matthew, for instance, you read, see Matthew's Jesus, he's a very Jewish Jesus. Right? He fulfills the Old Testament. He restarts the people of God. Mark's Jesus, he's like a piece of folk art, okay? Really simple. Mark's Greek, really simple. Jesus doesn't use fancy words, but there's strength in that. He's plain spoken. Right? Anyone can understand him. He's a peasant Jesus with dust in his beard who looks right at you and, and talks to you in a, in a language that everybody can understand. Luke's Jesus, a little different yet. Luke proclaims a universal for all humankind Jesus, salvation that stretches to the ends of the earth. I've bring you good news, a great joy, which shall be for all people. That's Luke. All right, so Luke 
Gentiles, women, the poor get special emphasis. You see Jesus care for those people in Luke. What about John? How does John present, how does John paint Jesus? John's Jesus is fierce, strong, and eternal. John's Jesus is full of the bright glory of God. If you want a, an image that's from this world that, that maybe gets you in John's frame of mind, if you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox church, an Orthodox church you've ever visited, you go inside and you look up in the middle of the church, there's always a dome up there. And usually on the dome, there's a picture of Jesus and he's leaning over. It's supposed to be the circle of the earth. So it's Jesus, Lord of all creation. He's looking over you and he's handing, holding up his hand in blessing. It's this strong, mighty Jesus. Jesus large and in charge. That's John's Jesus. John's Jesus is the Jesus of the I am's. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John's Jesus at the moment when he dies on the cross, you remember what he says? He doesn't cry out in pain. He says, it is finished. Which doesn't sound like someone being defeated. It sounds like someone dealing a mortal blow to his fiercest enemy, which is, of course, exactly what Jesus is doing at that moment. John's Jesus is fierce, strong, and eternal. You can't work this Jesus into the window display at Macy's. Frank Sinatra will not be crooning about this Jesus with a martini in his hand. You see that fierce, strong picture of Jesus right from the very beginning. The prologue paints John in exactly the, paints Jesus in exactly these terms. And for a minute, I would just like to be your museum director, like someone who's taking you on a tour of the art museum. And I want to show you the portrait of the prologue in particular, because there's a couple things I want to point out to you. If you know anything about painting, you know that classical painting will make allusions. Painters will paint things in that refer to other symbols or other stories, and it's a way to create meaning in their paintings. That's what John does when he paints Jesus in the prologue. He makes allusions. He paints Jesus with allusions to the Old Testament. And he shows that Jesus is the one present and responsible for all the great moments of Old Testament history. Creation. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing is made that has been made. He's got the power of creation in his hands. The temple. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word skenoo in Greek. That comes from the Greek word for tent. So if you wanted to be really literal to how to translate that, the word became flesh and tented among us, or even better, tabernacled among us. Jesus is like the tabernacle and more. Jesus' word became flesh, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus is the tabernacle and he's the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory that comes into it. To look in the face of this man is to look straight in the glory of God. Jesus encapsulates and sums up the temple and the law. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the law. John paints Jesus with the power of creation in his hands, the truth of the law in his mouth, and the glory of God in his face. 
That's one set of illusions in this painting of John. I would like to point out another set of illusions. In John's painting, he also makes reference to Greek philosophy. The word became flesh. That word, word, in the Greek is logos, which I think many of you know. Logos is a philosophical word used by Greek philosophers. The Stoics and other Greek philosophers were always looking for the logos of things. They were seeking the logos. What was the logos? It was the rational principle of the universe. The thing that held the universe together, the rules and the moral laws that govern the universe. They were looking for those things. They wanted to write them down so that they could follow them, and then they would have mastery over life. If you can find the logos, you can figure out life, they thought. Now, of course, these philosophers didn't always agree what the, mas- the rational and moral principle of the universe was, but they did agree that it was abstract. They did agree that it was something you could study and write down in a book. You could write these laws down. They all agreed on that. It was a worldview. You master this worldview, and you will master reality. John does something completely different. John says, no. The Logos is not abstract. The Logos is a person. You want to see the Logos? There he is. It's Jesus. You don't figure out the truth by studying it in a book. You figure out the truth by having a relationship with Jesus. You don't find your way in this world by studying Stoic philosophy. You find your way in this world in a relationship with Jesus. You don't find life in this world by learning the rational principles of the universe. You find life in this world by being in a relationship with Jesus. It's relational. Life is fundamentally relational. It's not an intellectual pursuit. Intellectual pursuit is great, but it's all downstream from a relationship with the one who is the word. Can I just make an observation here? If you look at logos and life the way the Greeks did, and many people today still do, right? There's all kinds of people in this world still trying to find the logos, the meaning of life, the rules for living. When you look at life that way, life becomes human achievement. All right, how do you find the logos? It's something you got to figure out. Rules that you got you to learn, meaning of life that you got to discern by reading a lot of books, and and then you got to master it by the force of your intellect and the force of your will. You climb the mountain to achieve the good life. But our logos is not a mountain you got to climb. Our logos comes down to us, into the muck. You don't have to master Jesus. He masters you. You don't have to achieve him. You receive him like a child. So there's John's inspired portrait of Jesus, and it's as strong and mighty as it can be. All the power of the Old Testament, all the story of the Old Testament, the power of God is in him. Everything the Greek philosophers are looking for is in him. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And maybe most important of all, this Jesus is looking right at you. This Jesus The one with the glory of God in his face is leaning towards you. He knows your name, and he has a question for you. And his question is, what are you going to do with me? Are you going to receive me? Or like so many others, are you going to push me away? What are you going to do with me? In one of his books, 
Frederick Beekner tells a story about an experience he had back in the 60s when he's in grad school in Boston. He went to see a movie at one of those movie theaters uh, near the colleges, so the, the theater was packed with college kids in Boston and grad students, and so they were all sophisticated, urbane, and cool. And the movie that they were going to see was Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, which was a new art film then that everyone wanted to see. So they're all packed in there, and um, he says, you know, uh, and if you've never seen the movie and you don't need to see it, but the movie begins with uh, an interesting scene. There's a helicopter that's flying over the city of Rome, and underneath the city of Rome is this bustling modern metropolis. It shows buildings going up, apartments going up, everything's changing, the modern world, helicopter flying over it. We only see the helicopter from a distance, but we can kind of see that there's, the helicopter's carrying something. Something is underneath it, swinging back and forth. And it gets close enough we see, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. It's a statue of Jesus, hung up underneath, underneath the helicopter, swinging back and forth. And it looks weak and, and dependent, right? It, you know what it looks like? It looks like one of those babies carried in one of those front-facing uh, things that parents use nowadays. That's what Jesus looks like, swinging back and forth in there. And he's carried over the city of Rome, and as he goes, children look up and they go, oh, they wave and they run, try to catch up to the helicopter. People working in the job site say, hey, Jesus, Jesus, ciao. Beekner says that in the theater at that point, everybody was laughing. They thought it was hilarious. The incongruity between this modern city and this Dependent Jesus swinging back and forth just struck them as ironic and funny. The scene goes on. The helicopter flies over a set of apartments and there's four or five beautiful women sunbathing on top of this apartment in their bikinis. And they're absolutely gorgeous. And so the guy driving the helicopter turns the helicopter around, carries the helicopter and Jesus back to the top of and tries to get the number of these girls, tries to flirt with them. And, of course, now everybody's really laughing in the movie theater, again, because the incongruity, rigid Jesus and these women who are so alive and so full of possibilities. The helicopter flies away. And then Fellini changes the frame. Up till now, we've only seen Jesus in the side, small. But all of a sudden, you see Jesus head on. You realize his hands are extended in blessing and his face is looking right at you. And the Jesus gets closer and closer to you, and his face starts to fill the frame. And Beekner says at that moment in the theater, something really interesting happened. Everybody stopped laughing. Everybody stopped laughing, and it became quiet, almost like a kind of pregnant silence. And Beekner says it was as if everybody in that theater knew that that face had a claim on them. Everybody in that theater knew they had to reckon with that face. Everyone in that theater, whether they would acknowledge it as part of their belief system or not, knew at some deep place that they belonged to that face. Like Jesus was saying to them, what are you going to do with me? And so it is with John. Throughout Advent, We've been lighting candles and Jesus has been drawing nearer to you. He's been getting bigger in your frame and now through the prologue, he's become very big indeed. 
And the Lord of heaven and earth leans towards you and says, what are you going to do with me? That's the question of John's whole gospel. When he shows you Jesus, he always is asking you that question. He tells you that's his theme. John 20, verse 31. There are lots of stories of Jesus. I could have told you, says John. Lots I could have written down, but I wrote down these ones. You want to know why? Because I wanted you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing, have life in his name. John is not messing around. He's not proclaiming to you an eternal life insurance policy. He's not giving you advice from some ancient sage. He's not giving you a powerful partner who can help you achieve the dreams that you want. He is showing you the Lord of heaven and earth who comes to you with grace and offers you his life and asks you to receive it. And now I proclaim this Lord to you here in this place. I am not selling life insurance. I'm not giving you advice. I'm not here to wish you a merry little Christmas. I'm here to say to you, the word has become flesh and dwelt among you. He's come down into your mess and into your sin. He's come with grace and he offers you his life. I ask you to believe in his name and in believing, have life. Amen. Lord Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. We thank you that your strength has come to us, not to condemn us, not to condemn us, but to die for us and give us life. Lord, we pray that this Christmas we may open up whatever doors remain closed in our hearts and that you may fill us from top to bottom so that we may become creatures of your abundant life. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.